What did you eat for breakfast? Oh, um, I had a protein bar. I wanted something more than that, but it's grocery day, so uh, I have to pick up the groceries a little later, so we're completely out of food. <laughs> so I scrounged a protein bar. Usually I... I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm very much one or the other when it comes to breakfast. It's either going to be all the breakfast, like, yep. you know, the deluxe, something that makes a sizzling sound, you know, kind of breakfast or just like a protein shake or something really kind of last minute. So today was a last minute, unfortunately. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 135. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. Joining me in this long overdue interview is the master shredder of Killbot Zero himself, Mr. Chris Caveira. Regular listeners will have heard his guitar playing on pretty much every episode's intro music, as well as a few Killbot tunes, and possibly even a Brucifer track as well. Chris shares his musical history, how he writes music, and of course we disappear down the obligatory guitar gear rabbit hole. We also chat about how Chris got into teaching, how he approaches improving his playing and learning new techniques, as well as delving into his experience dealing with mental health issues. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, this Wednesday 8th to Saturday 11th, September 2021, is the Music Pro Summit hosted by Indie Week. Check out episode 113 with Daryl Herz, 
where he talks about the Indie 101 conference which I attended and got a lot of useful information about growing a music career as well as there being a ton of opportunities to network with musicians and other people in the industry. Hope to see you there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today I am finally, which is completely my fault, joined by Mr. Chris Cavera. How are you doing, sir? I am excellent. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. All right, so... Listeners have heard you on pretty much every episode playing guitar. First of yeah. all, th- thank you for <laughs> thank you for you and Bruce allowing me to use the music and you know what you've done because it's it's ki- absolutely killer. Sporting my MTV takeoff shirt as well. She's seen better days. Well, yeah, I, lo- I love the shirt and thank you for putting our music out there. We really appreciate all the support you've given us throughout the years and. You know, all the stuff you've done for us, it's been excellent. And so I am totally flattered that you would use our music uh, in your podcast and uh, owe you a a debt of gratitude. Thank you. All right. Well, for people that don't know, let's just do a quick introduction of who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Well, I was born April 19th, 1975. We're starting from the beginning, right? You can start wherever you want. I mean, we can we can go back that far. Or you can just give a brief okay. overview of what you do now, and then we'll go back later on. Up to you. This is a free form conversation. Yes. Well, like many people, I was I, I was born at a very young age. Hmm. Let's see. I've been involved in music since, like a lot of people, I think, like fifth grade band. You know, here in in the states is where. A lot of students kind of get their first taste of, of any sort of music unless they grow up in a musical household. My household was not particularly musical. Like my sister really ran with it and took off with it. Mm-hmm. But my, my parents, my brother and my other sister were not really super duper musical. But I was around it and uh, we had, you know, like a huge eight track collection. We had a record player. We had the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack which I think most people my age might have encountered at some point in their mm-hmm. parents' record collection. I'm pretty sure my dad had the vinyl as well. Yeah. I, I would play it on the wrong speed, so it was all like <laughs> fast, and I would dance around the room in, in fast motion. I might have been a little hyper. Of course, back then, they didn't have mm-hmm. any sort of – there was no diagnosis for anything. It was just, oh, he's he has energy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, fifth grade, I started – band they i wanted to do drums but they put me on trumpet because they needed people to play trumpet and so i endured trumpet for a year mm-hmm. and then was able to switch to uh, percussion and at the same time started private percussion lessons from a local guy did that drums were sort of my life mm-hmm. uh, i did the private instruction and then school band all the way up through the end of high school but that last year of high school, I was I was probably like 17 and I got my first electric guitar mm-hmm. and just could not put it down. I, I think the the drum lessons kind of prepared me for, for that. And the style of music that I was into at that time was was pretty much, as far as guitar goes, it was the Kill 'Em All mm-hmm. album. And it was, it, which is all palm muting and power chords, you know. So as a percussionist, if you can palm mute, and play a power chord, you, you kind of already have that rhythmic foundation. You can kind of fill in the rest. Mm-hmm. And so it was very easy for me right off the right off the bat to do that kind of percussive playing, you know, 
so yeah, then I was I was kind of hooked on guitar and did that did kind of both guitar and percussion throughout college. Majored in music, so I have a bachelor's in music theory and composition, and then a master's degree in music composition as well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I've been doing. I, I would split my time between guitar and drums for for a long time. Here recently, I haven't really been playing the drums. There's just no good place for me to set the kit up, mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit more to have that practice space. Right. And I have my hands full just trying to keep up with guitar stuff anyway. So, mm-hmm. so that's about where we're at. And I've just been in bands, you know, all through that time in high right. school and college and all that stuff. And so you're, you're a professor in recording technology. Is that correct? Yeah. For about 13 years at the school I used to work at, I was on their music faculty. Mm-hmm. So I taught recording, audio, MIDI, did private lessons and taught music theory. And then I'm at a different school now. Okay. And here I am technically, it's a it's media production. So really most of the time I'm teaching video editing now, okay. which I find really cool. It's a lot like music, yeah. but uh, it's kind of nice to have a break from, from all the audio stuff. Like just this morning, I, I'm here in the studio and it's been so long since I've used the studio that... You know, just troubleshooting, getting getting audio to work has been a little bit of a pain. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's those kinds of things I don't miss about the audio world. You know, it's not working. Why not? Well, let's go down our list and find out, you know, troubleshoot this, troubleshoot that. So, yeah, mostly I do video editing. I do teach a couple of audio classes here. Adobe Premiere is, is mm-hmm. what I'm mostly working with right now. That's what I've been up to for about the last five years. Awesome. How did you get into teaching in the first place? Ooh, that's a good question. Some of it was persistence and some of it was being in the right place at the right time. Right out of college, I was doing sort of game testing and game audio for a company called Friendly Software, which is now, I think, long gone. Mm -hmm. And they specialized in golf games only. So it was... (laughs) It was a lot of testing golf games, which was very tedious, and then handling the occasional audio problem that would come up. Well, when uh, 9-11 happened, they, half of that company was software and half of it was an online travel agency, which online travel agencies okay. were a thing at one point. So when 9-11 happened, the online travel agency part of the company completely shut down because mm-hmm. nobody was interested in getting on a plane at that point. So they let about five of us go. And uh, since I was one of the newer people, I guess, I was the one of the ones let go. So I worked at a local grocery store for about a year and a half. And the only way that I could think to get out of that was to sort of, you know, say, well, what do I want to do? Well, I want to work at a university, but teaching gigs, if you have a master's degree, you know, teaching gigs are hard to come by at that level. So I thought, well, I could be an academic advisor so I could help students sign up for college and sign up for courses and stuff. Because all you need for that is a master's degree in anything. It doesn't matter what it's in. So I went around to all the different colleges and universities in my area and basically interviewed them. I I call it the preemptive strike. It's like, it doesn't matter if they're hiring or not. You go interview them and ask them a bunch of questions about the job and you dress nice and you, you know, have good communication skills with them and and then you, when you're done with one interview, you ask where you should go next. And then basically they, they keep sending you around. And I got to one place and they were like, well, we're not really looking for 
academic advisors, but do you know anything about audio? And I was like, sure. <laughs> you know, do you know how to, you know, run a recording studio? And I lied and I said, yeah, no problem. You know, <laughs> so that first job was just kind of being in the right place, right time. It was part-time teaching gig. And it was a lot of me learning as I went and stay, trying to stay ahead of the students. Mm -hmm. And I did have, you know, some recording background just with the degrees in music composition. There's a certain amount of recording tech and electronic music that kind of goes along with that. So it's not like I was completely in the dark. I, I always feel like I need to apologize to those first few students I had because, you know, come back. I know more now. Come back. One of them actually runs the studio here at the college where I currently teach. So that's kind of cool. A success story, I guess. Right. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Just tried to build off of that, you know. So at 17, you got into guitar. What, what prompted you to pick the guitar up as opposed to continuing with the drums? That's a really good question. I think I just had this urge inside of me to deal with harmonies and melodies. So it's interesting because before that, at like age 16 or something, I tried to pick the trumpet back up because I thought, well, this will be, you know, something I have at least some prior experience with. And I just wanted, I really, really wanted to make melodies. And I had tried to play guitar before. There was like a, a terrible acoustic guitar at my house where the action was like, you know, three mm -hmm. inches high. And I had tried to play that with little success. But that first electric guitar that I got really just fit me like a glove. And I was able to make noises on that that resembled, you know, my favorite bands mm. at the time, which were pretty much, it was either thrash, like, you know, Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer, those kinds of things. Or it was, on the flip side, I was really into Rush. So kind of like... Rush and, and Van Halen were, were from like when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12. I was since then I was into Rush and, and ELP, uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, mainly due to my brother, my older brother. He was like seven years older than me. So mm -hmm. he kind of got me into that kind of stuff. And interestingly enough, the Transformers, the movie soundtrack from 1986 and not so much like there's some popish type stuff on there from like actual bands. But then there's the uh, guy who did the uh, actual soundtrack for it, which I think it's Vince DiCola is his name. I'd have to look that up, but I'm pretty sure that's him. But he he composed, you know, just like the action sequences and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And that blew me away. And if you go find it, you can find it on YouTube, just the entire soundtrack, not so much the, you know, the stuff with lyrics but the instrumental stuff just blew my mind and mm -hmm. still blows my mind at how, how good it is. And you can really tell that guy ha is influenced by ELP, like by, mm -hmm. by Prague and, and stuff. So That definitely makes a lot of sense given what you guys do in Killbot in terms of doing soundtracks or writing music to a edited video right but yeah let's talk about killbot i mean how from your perspective i think i think bruce went into it on the first time he was on the podcast but from your yeah. perspective like how did killbot come about well let's see i was working at that grocery place it was kind of like a superstore with you know grocery items and other items as well 
And I was working with a guy there who was sort of in the local music scene. I guess we got to talking and he said, oh, you should check out this guy, Bruce Vermette. He's this amazing drummer, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I, I think through him, Bruce and I met for the first time. And now I was, I was at the time probably 28 years old and Bruce was 18 mm -hmm. or 19, something like that, you know? So I was like, oh, this kid's, you know, this is young kid. But anyway, he was, even at that age, he was like the best drummer I'd ever met in real life. Mm. <laughs> you know? He was just amazing kind of all over the place a little bit, but like really raw, but just um, super duper fast and accurate and really musical. Even back then, Bruce was writing his own music using a program called Noteworthy, you know, mm -hmm. which is just, he was using it as a MIDI, sort of a MIDI controller type, type of situation, but he was, it was all standard musical notation. So he was writing all of his ideas out in standard musical notation using Noteworthy which was impressive. But we jammed together a few times in his uh, parents' basement, you know, tried a few different things out with keyboard players and bass players. Then after a while, Bruce left to go to school out in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. right? And we just kind of lost contact for a little bit. I got a little more serious about writing and recording music. And so when he came back, I was like, well, I have these tracks, you know, that I've done with fake drums. And do you want to put, do you want to like record real drums on them? Because now I work at this college now that has a studio and we could bring you in and record real drums and why not, you know? So that was probably 2003 or four at that time. And when we started laying down some of our first tunes and eventually had enough to put on a disc and we called it Game Over. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was kind of the, the start of that. And and around that time, too, we started playing at a local club here. Howard's. Howard's, yes. Mm -hmm. Howard's has not changed very much. They don't allow smoking anymore. <laughs> but I don't think that is, it hasn't done much to change the atmosphere of the place. I, I tell people it's like, it's like the hold of a pirate ship. It's like dark. It stinks. There's weird sounds. There's drunk people hmm. everywhere. You know, your life is a little bit in danger. So that's that's Howard's. But yeah, we started playing there and we got the idea that if we had our re other recorded tracks on a CD player, you know, we could we could use a CD player uh, with a click track and we could basically use a split and, and split one side, have a click to all our, our music on one side, along with the count off, send that to our headphones. And then the other side we would send to front of house, which was just like bass and keyboards. So the audience would hear drums, guitar, bass, and keyboards, and then we would hear drums, guitar, bass, and keyboards along with a click and a count off and even a, a song announcement, like what's coming up next and stuff. So awesome. And that's kind of how we got started with that. And you were channeling your inner teacher by putting the rack with the TV on top of it too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. that, that came a little later. Like like at the beginning there, we were just, you know, playing music with no visuals at all. Mm. Then later we decided, well, if we're doing this through a computer rather than a CD player, because CD players have a tendency to skip on stage. But if we're doing this through a computer, you know, we have we could use a video file and it would have the stereo audio with it, plus a video of something going on at the same time. And we could synchronize it all together, you know, mm -hmm. and that was sort of our aha moment of how we could pull that off live. And I don't think anybody was doing 
anything like that at the time. I think there are several bands that do that now. Mm. And it was probably like they didn't steal that idea from us. It's probably just a case of parallel thinking. You know, it's a Mm -hmm. good idea. And so a lot of people are going to come up with it at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are doing automations in in, uh, Pro Tools and stuff like that now for all their effects. So they don't even have to press a pedal anymore. And it's yeah. all synced up yeah. with the video. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's see. Let's uh, let's let's go down the uh, the gear guitar gear rabbit hole. You still have your Ibanez rock? Is it rock and roll or the the rocket, V? It's rocket, rocket roll. roll. That's it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my main go to. It has been since I think I got that in probably oh two thousand three or four. Eh maybe 2005. I bought it off eBay basically because Buckethead had one. Mm-hmm. And I thought if it's good enough for Buckethead, it's good enough for me. I wanted a flying V, but at the time and e- even now, most flying Vs try to have this sort of you know heavy metal thing going on. So they're either your choices are black or white or with some weird you know heavy metal graphic. Mm-hmm. They're all fairly, I think, gaudy, you know, with like extra points and just stuff that I didn't really care about. So the rocket roll is just, you know, a uh, a sunburst, you know, sort of tiger maple finish, mm-hmm. natural finish. And it's very much of it's a V, but it's very mature. It's very, uh, you know, classy in the way it's presented. So I really liked that about it. Plus, it's an Ibanez. It plays really well. It's got you know, a really thin neck. It's sort of like a Gibson V, but that's been modded for like, you know, like a street car that's been modded for racing. Is it a wizard neck or is it thicker than that? I I really don't remember. I think it is a wizard neck. It's a 24 and three quarters scale length. So it's this Gibson scale length, which I enjoy and am very used to at this point. And my other, I have an Ibanez V blade, like a, I forget the uh, letters and numbers associated with it, but it came out later. Like it's a, one of the guys from Dragon Force, like it was one of his mm. ideas for a guitar. So it's a, it's kind of just a, a sort of a standard V with the Ibanez headstock, but it's 25 and a half mm-hmm. for the scale length. So it's a bit just, just enough that I noticed it on the lower frets that it's like, oh, it's a little harder to stretch down here. But those are those two guitars is, are really all I have at this point. I mean, I have a little bass and I have a little acoustic, but I'm I'm the type of person I've owned twenty or thirty guitars in my life. But if there's something I really want, I'll look around my house and see, okay, what can I sell to make money to buy this thing that I want now? So I've gone through very you know a ton of guitars over the years. But generally, you know, the eighties made in Japan Ibanez stuff is really, really, I've had a lot of success with, with those. So that's 10, that tends to be what I look for now as well, if I'm interested, but Mm. yeah, the rocket roll still reigns supreme. It's completely stock and it's, it plays beautifully. And any guitar that I try to play that is not that guitar just feels awful in my hands. (laughs) So and you've got a PV Ultra right now? Yes, the PV Ultra Plus, 120 mm-hmm. watts of backbreaking power. And it sits in my basement on top of, uh, I have a 412 and a 212. The, it just kind of sits up there. I don't use it 
much anymore because it is, I can't move it. First of all, I broke, I, I hurt my back the last time I tried to, to move it. So it kind of stays where it is. I also have a boss katana head. Okay. Are, they're really nice little, if you want a, a cheap solid state head, I highly recommend them. They sound really good. And then for the last few years, I've been using the Axe FX3. So I, I okay. splurged, got an Axe FX3, and that's pretty much been it for the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I really love the tones you've gotten on the albums. I think the intro music to the podcast is the Killbot Zero intro. Uh, yes. If I'm not mistaken. So what what's that running through? Was that the Ultra or is that what you had before? No, that is probably a plug-in. Oh, really? Or it could be the 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 uh, Digitech GSP eleven oh one. I used that for a while. Mm. That was kind of their flagship modeler. You know, uh, for, uh, I forget what year that came out. It might have been that. It was either that or Amplitude, like a or a software plugin of some sort. That first Killbot album was a Laney GH fifty with a boss super overdrive running through it, which sounded really awesome. But it was, you know, after a while I had a rack with, you know, an ISP decimator, a tuner, an EQ, kind of all the stuff that that you acquire when you're dealing with a with a a really loud tube tube amp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone through I had a fifty one fifty for a while. Uh, which was awesome. I'm kind of sorry I got rid of that. Original one or? It was not the block letter. It was one of the later years. Yeah. Yeah. Still really amazing. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it did that one sound, but it did it really, really well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I I even had a Mesa triple rectifier for a while. Wasn't a fan of it. It was a little too, like there's a switch on the back, like modern and classical. And I always had it on classic because I think that's really more where my Mm-hmm. My tone leads a little more towards like a sort of a Van Halen y, just over overdriven Marshall kind of sound. And those are the kinds of models I'm using now on the Axe FX are just, mm. you know, these kind of pushed Marshall types of sounds. So awesome. I'm I'm kind of an old old fart when it comes to tone, I guess, you know. Sort of that I mean, Marshall. not much has really changed. I mean, they keep reinventing the wheel every time they put a, a new amp out and it's really doesn't sound i've been watching a lot of gear demos and it it doesn't seem like the amps really sound that much different i mean there's characteristics of different you know gain stages and stuff but in general you stack up three different amps and i mean honestly if you put them through the same speaker you're not really gonna see a huge amount of difference you know, if you throw that's very true if you throw a throw a fuzz pedal instead of a, a you know a a digital distortion with a square waveform, you know, there's going to be a difference, but the amp itself, the characteristics, they're not that drastically different. So it's, you know, you see all these people with their racks and racks of amps and they do have amazing amps and they all sound amazing for different reasons. But yeah, guitar tone is, is, I think it's a lot of it is cork sniffing and and that's to perpetuate the sales. You know, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I, I was frustrated for a while because it was like every amp that I bought, it was like, man, this sounds so much like the one I just had. Mm-hmm. And it's because I'm playing it through the same, you know, 212 vintage 30 
cab every time. And so, sure, it's going to sound similar. It's like mm-hmm. people forget that the cab makes so much difference, you know. And that's one of the fun things about the XFX3 is you can really just endlessly Dial in that. Yeah. tweak. Yeah, I mean, it's fun for me. Some people might find it a little daunting. And I do, too, sometimes. It is incredibly complex how, how deep they go with that mm-hmm. particular unit. But it's kind of cool, too. It's, it's like you can sort of dream up a tone in your head and say, well, how am I going to do that on the Axe effects? And what do I need to put together to make that happen? Right. So kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I love messing with the, with the IRs and the plugins. But anytime I record anything, I have to be playing through a live amp. Yeah. I just, I can't get along with even the slightest bit of latency. You know, it affects my playing too much. So I, I don't listen to the monitor mix. I just listen to my amp and that's what I react to. And then, you know, I'll I'll mess around with a direct signal for sure. But that's, you know, after the fact. So, yeah, that can be a, that can be a, the big uh, sort of problem with with dealing with plugins and dealing with software and that kind of stuff is if there's any sort of latency at all, it'll really kind of screw you up which is kind of a bummer. So so would you say, I mean, what would your ideal recording situation be? Would it be, you know, really nice amp, speaker, microphone, or would it be just, you know, the Axe effects? I'd probably have to say just the Axe effects, only because with, you know, having a, a job and kids and a house and a mortgage and all that, it's like I'll record for just a little bit and then I'll have other other responsibilities for a while. Mm. So having a mic'd amp, unless I had like a little house behind my house where I could leave stuff set up, you know, then I probably would like to have a, a, a mic'd amp if I could get consistent sound out of it. But it's the uh, having a busy schedule and needing c- consistent sound is mm-hmm. where stuff like plugins and the Axe effects really shine, you know, or having a really small space to record in. Yeah, with that situation, I'd say the Axe effects. If I had all the money in the world, of course, I'd have a special little, you know, purpose-built studio somewhere that's just just my little safe space with all my all the drums and everything set up and sort of permanently there. Mm-hmm. I could I could drop a lot of money on something like that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I'm sure we all dream of such a place, but yeah, yeah. For for busy people, the Axe effects or similar stuff is, I think, probably the best way to go. Awesome. Would you mind talking about your mental health? I know you emailed me about that. Oh, not at all. Yeah. So yeah, let's just give give us a background on on what you've been dealing with, and you know what, how you've kind of been able to overcome some stuff and deal with others. Yeah. So I have generalized anxiety disorder, which leans towards social anxiety, and that was for that first came around. I was probably eighteen, nineteen. So right as I was getting into college, what happens is I'll, I'll become nauseous uh, if I get a little too um, nervous or get anxious. That's how it kind of manifests itself. There are also panic attacks, mm-hmm. although I haven't really had a full-blown panic attack in many, many years. And then let's see, in my 20s, clinical depression kind of came in, which I've really only been truly, really depressed like twice or three times in my life. It kind of would be sort of an every five years kind of thing where it was really bad. 
And I think lately I've learned to kind of sense when that is coming and I can kind of back myself away from it because uh, you really, it's not anything you would wish on anybody, you know, to, to feel that way. And so I think, you know, there's been sort of mild depression in there, you know, kind of off and on, but really the, the severe stuff I'm hoping I'm kind of done with, you know, forever. <laughs> but that's, that's what it's mainly been. And I've seen counselors off and on over the years, and the current counselor I'm seeing is really good. And I, I see him about every third week now. So I've been on various medications. And I think it's important to talk about this stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, there's this stigma that goes along with it and people are kind of afraid of it. But I think the more of us that kind of just talk about it, like it's a real thing and it exists, you know, I think it really helps other people to come forward and seek help. Totally. But uh, as far as medications go, Xanax or Alprazolam, I guess, is I've been taking that off and on since like 1994, 95, something like that. And for me, that's been really, really helpful. I don't particularly have an addictive personality. I, I don't drink at all. And so I've been able to manage my dosage mm-hmm. of that particular drug over the years, which I think is important to mention because it can be dangerous uh, and it can be addictive. And it's one of those where you, uh, a lot of people just have to take it to feel normal kind of things. But the problem with it is you have to, you would have to keep increasing your dosage if you're going to do that. So mm-hmm. I'm very careful with it. And uh, that's why I've been able to sort of, maintain it for so many years. And then tried Prozac for a while, which didn't really do anything, switched it up to a different one after that. And then the third one, I antidepressant I went through was uh, Cymbalta. Which is what I'm on as well. Yep. Yeah. And for me, it was one of those things where it, you really, I really couldn't tell if it was working or not. I think it did help, but at the same time, I think I really didn't, well, it wasn't necessary for me to be taking it. Mm-hmm. So I worked with my doctor and we gradually, you know, over the course of many months, reduced the uh, dosage down to as low as we could go. Mm-hmm. And then I've been off of it now for about three and a half weeks. Okay. You know, I think when you're getting into something like that, it's important to mention if there's going to be an exit strategy mm-hmm. because it's antidepressants can be difficult to stop taking and you must work with a doctor to, yes. to dial down your dose. It's really, really important. If I, cause I did try just cold Turkey one time and by about day two, you're feeling pretty miserable. <laughs> Did you get the hyper dizziness and, and just like you feel really loopy and then you start getting – I get a little angry and I'm like, oh, shit. Did I take it yesterday? And then I forget and then yeah. I'm like, oh, crap. And I know I'm – Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm not – I hadn't taken it. It's it's a not a good not a good feeling. Not a good feeling at all. I call it IDS, irritable dad syndrome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I went through a little bit of that. My my dose, my at my highest dosage, I was on like 160 wow. per day, 
which I think is fairly high. That is high. And then got it down to 20. And 20 was as low as they made it, I guess. Um, That's what I'm on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even even with 20, if you're on like a, a, um, a, like a, a pill that you can cut in half or you can like my, my mom actually used a, a nail file to grind them down gradually because mm-hmm. even 20 is is tough to quit and that's i ended up having just to quit 20 uh cold turkey and i even even now like tonight when i get tired i'll probably get a little dizzy mm-hmm. but you definitely get irritable you'll definitely get the uh, brain zaps so the brain zaps are hard to describe but it feels like your brain is being zapped yep. <laughs> And it happens a lot with uh, if you like move your eyes left to right, like lateral eye movement, you'll hear in your head like uh, the sound of somebody hitting a crash cymbal and you'll feel this sort of jolt. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are pretty much gone now. But but like, you know, three and a half weeks out still like tonight, about nine or 10 o'clock, if I start to get tired, I'll start to get a little bit zappy and a little bit dizzy. And I've heard of people like I was taking the the caplets with like tiny particles inside, little plastic pills. I've heard of people breaking those open and actually counting out the tiny little particles, which there are about 300 in there. And they'll gradually take one away, you know, over the course of however many days (laughs) to to completely reduce. Right. You know, those types of antidepressants, I think, are real lifesavers for people. In my particular case, I felt like I, it wasn't necessary for me to take them. So yeah, it's been a gradual step down. I still do occasionally take the alprazolam sort of on an as needed basis. And I still see the counselor, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been, I've been managing. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you for sharing so much. And, you know, yeah, just so, so the podcast doesn't get into trouble. Make sure you see your doctor. We're not medical professionals. Yeah. Have to add that disclaimer there. So always, always work with a doctor. (laughs) Yeah, always. Let's see. So let, let's move on to the non-quick fire round. Okay. What is one piece of advice you would give a musician? I let's go with making to uh, looking to make a living from music. That's an excellent question. I would say there are a couple of different ways to go about it. If you want to perform, if you want to be a gigging musician, I think you need to be ready to play in a lot of different styles and be maybe play more than one instrument. And you can also teach private lessons on the side, but it's a career that you have to build yourself. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a career that you have to construct. So I think, you know, there's, there's some teaching in there for sure. If you know about audio, like if you can run a board at a venue, maybe you're doing that certain nights. But there are, you know, sort of different levels that, that you can do. If you happen to live in a place where there's a lot of recording going on, you can try to be a studio musician. But just like with anything, it's going to be about building relationships and networking with people, being reliable, showing up on time. You know, your gear is ready to go. Your gear is in order, that kind of, that kind of thing. And also knowing how to do your own taxes and stuff like that mm. is, is important as well. So that's that's one avenue, the performing musician, you know, and be ready to play music that is maybe not your first choice, but be ready to give it 100 percent. You know, Uh. there are a lot of jobs in the music industry that don't really involve playing music. So if you go to the uh, winter NAM show or the summer NAM show, 
the National Association of Musical Merchandisers. You know, there's a lot of music industry jobs that where, you know, people need people who know about marketing, Mm -hmm. you know, people who know about manufacturing. And I think those are overlooked and kind of cool Mm -hmm. because, you know, you are right there with all the professionals and all the famous musicians are there and you're working with them and you really feel a part of that club, you know? So I think, you know, that's, that's an avenue that, that people, the music business side of it is, is something that I think is overlooked and, and, and should be considered too. And then there's the purely educational side, you know, which is pretty much what I did whether it be teaching private lessons or teaching at a school, you know, that's another way to sort of make your living as a musician. And I think that's a very valuable thing too. Mm. So those, those kind of three avenues, you know, and if you're a young person listening to this and you say, well, I just want to be a producer, you, you really need to know what that means. Cause I think a lot of people think of a producer and they just think of somebody who, you know, is, sort of making beats in their in their basement but uh, you need to have a definition of what that really is and it's really you know you're a bank you're somebody with money and you're investing your money in an artist and you have creative control but it's 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 not something you do you know right out of high school or college you have to work up to that <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and you have to know your theory and you have to be able to play you know those uh, I, I, I tend to trail I tend to uh, lose track of what I'm saying, but that's that's <laughs> kind of where where I'm going with that. I guess I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, jumping off that, I mean, the the producer I think is one of the most sketchy. Well, not the, the word sketchy, but uh, the most variable titles you can have because you can have, you know, in in rock music, let's say you've got like Rick Rubin, who doesn't, as far as I know, doesn't play a musical instrument. He's more of a psychologist. He just basically gets the the bands to produce, but that's like upper level, you know, who, whoever, like Nine Inch Nails and, and Soundgarden and all those guys. And then you get the hip hop version, which, as you said, is making beats and being the the music part. Whereas, you know, and you have like a rapper or a singer over the top of that. So there's there's a lot of variation in what a producer actually does. I think that's yeah. you know it's it's really yeah it's genre dependent. And I think, like you said, you just have to define what it is you're mm-hmm. looking to do. Whereas, you know, a mixing engineer is a mixing engineer, a guitar player is a guitar player, but producer is just like, you know. Yeah. I think a lot of people get recording engineer and producer mixed up mm-hmm. a little bit because they sort of picture sure. the same person. But, you know, a lot of times a recording engineer has no say like no creative control over anything. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of there to hit record and make sure everything sounds good and the mics are set, you know. And and then beyond that, there might be an additional mixing engineer whose job is just to mix. Right. And nowadays, everybody kind of does all of the, wears all those hats at once just because it's it's very accessible now. You know, you can have Reaper on your computer mm-hmm. and an interface and, you know, you're you're kind of off and running. So yeah, it's important to know like what what jobs are out there and how are you going to get paid from those jobs is I think kind of the ultimate question. And I don't know if there's a lot of this now, but you know, when I was coming up through school, there was a lot of rock star syndrome where 
people think, well, I'm different. I'm going to, you know, my band's going to get a record contract or whatever. And recording contracts really don't exist anymore in the way that people think that they mm. do um, or thought that they did in the 90s, at least. And it doesn't really mean much anymore. It's become more of booking, like a booking kind of thing. And the idea of selling music for profit is kind of ha is and has been in limbo for some time now. So like if I have a song, if I wanted to, re you know, sell a, a song now, I would probably do it on like Bandcamp and just kind of have a pay what you want kind of model. Mm hmm. Because there are people out there who are still willing to support and still very interested in supporting artists, which is great. But then I think a lot of people are just used to, you know, spending sort of a monthly fee on Spotify and just having access to all of it uh, at once. I don't know. I do kind of miss the days where you would buy a CD or an album. You'd have a physical thing and it was yours. And, you know, it was sort of like you're directly supporting the artist, you know, in that way. And it had, I think, just value, more value than it does now. I think people expect music to be, you know, free or very cheap at this mm -hmm. point. <laughs> but I, I pretty much, if I if I find a band I like, or I, I at this point, I just uh, purchase it on iTunes, you know, is kind of where I'm at. Right. Um, I haven't really done any, gotten into Spotify or anything like that yet. So I do the Spotify thing just because it's the best way of discovering things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, I honestly think that the uh, the model of selling your music to consumers is pretty much at, a, at an end. You really need to think about other ways of making, you know, revenue from your fans, which is merch and it's, you know, tab books or what, whatever it is. But I think the model that, yeah. is very under underused is you know take taking your album as your kind of calling card like that's and you know if if you can make a living touring great but cutting that up and, and getting into sync licensing which i've been kind of talking about for quite some time now yeah and and i've said this before is like you, you're as a creative person you, you need to shift your mindset from I need this one track or this one or two tracks for this album. And then all those little ideas of, oh, what happens if I change this snare sound? Or what happens if this chorus changes this way? Or, you know, make those variations for sync licensing and then cut up all your stems. And then you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 tracks that you can put into a library. And then somebody making a movie, you know, can buy them. And, you know, you've got all this material that, that actually can make revenue, whereas you're trying to force it into consumers' hands for a dollar a song. And, you know, the the, the uh, that model, I think, is on its way out. Yeah. What's next, I don't know. But, you know, I think the sync licensing angle is, is going to be more and more important because we're all consumers of video. And, you know, the platforms are exponentially growing. So everyone's going to need soundtracks for their... A video. Yeah, you're totally right. It's 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 sort of like it's either gone or on its way out and it's never coming back. Mm -mm. So it's kind of like you have to adapt, you know, and find new ways of doing things. So it doesn't and it doesn't do much good to reminisce and, and ruminate about it. It's kind of like, well, let's figure out what the next step is, you know.
So that's a really that's a really good idea. I've I've been doing YouTube videos, so I imagine that since I've started doing YouTube, then that platform's probably going to die pretty soon, <laughs> just because that's how it usually goes. As soon as I get interested in something, then the technology goes away. So I started doing YouTube videos back in April, just sort of guitar instruction stuff, really not to make any money, but just to just because I enjoyed doing it. And I thought, well, here's a way for me to sort of feel like I'm teaching during a pandemic. And it's a way for me to uh, get my music out there and just sort of also keep my editing chops going, mm -hmm. my video editing chops going. So it was sort of like practice uh, for that as well. But yeah, I, uh, that's, that's sort of like my main sort of musical project now. Is just trying to get that that YouTube channel off the ground. I think there's about 24 videos on there right now. Awesome. So that's that's where I'm headed, and I'm getting ready to record some more here pretty soon. Cool. You're quite the shredder. Thank you. Lot lot of fluidity in your playing that I really like. John, as a teacher, you know what what is your mindset about becoming? I'm not going to say fast, but just more well rounded, and and you know. How how does your mindset work when you're teaching someone about the instrument in general? Excellent question. Yeah, I I consider myself more of a scientist rather than a musician. So I approach it in a very scientific way, which has its good points and its bad points. So the way that I've the main way that I've built up my chops over the years has been through sort of very specific practice. So I'm, I'm really good at seeing the problem. Like, here's the problem. Mm -hmm. I can't do this lick or I can't play in this way or, or make this, make the guitar, make this sound. What I can do is I can design an exercise that'll make that happen. So that's, I think, where my strength comes in. It's like if I want to get better at, you know, sweeping, well, I can design an exercise that'll make it happen. Will that exercise be fun? No. <laughs> <laughs> Will it be tedious? Yes. So, you know, for a while there, probably a year ago or I forget now, I'm having trouble. The older you get, the harder it is to keep track of time. I had about an hour and 15 minute regimen that I would run through. That was all sort of these exercises, you know, and it's me trying to make sure that every single day I'm doing something to improve my legato playing, my picking, my sweep picking, my chords, all these different aspects of playing. What it's done is it's it's made it like it came to the point where I, I decided, great, I can play scales really fast. Why am I not happy? You know, why has why does that not make me happy? <laughs> I was supposed to be happy when I could do this. That was the plan. I was going to get really good at shredding and then I would be happy, but I wasn't. So lately I've been focusing on bending and playing very slowly with a lot of emotion and trying to get mm -hmm. single notes to sound beautiful just on their own and improvising in different ways. So for the longest time, I would say, well, I know all the notes all over the neck. And if I needed to improvise over a song, I would say, well, what key is it in? 
So here's the scale I can use over the entire song. And then I would just use my ears to try to navigate where the good notes were. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what note should I hang out on? You know, what note should I try to sustain? So I was purely just using my ears and fretboard knowledge to do that. And, and then lately, over the last year or so, I've been trying to approach it more like a jazz player and think chord to chord. Mm -hmm. So instead of starting with scale ideas, start with chord ideas. So just play the chord changes and then play the chord changes, but use chord embellishments and then sort of, you know, think of it that way. And I think that's tremendously helped out with my improvisation and soloing in general hmm. is thinking chord to chord rather than thinking one giant scale. Yeah. I mean, that that's pretty advanced stuff. It kind of takes a lot of brain power to, to think of, you know, playing through the changes. I, I kind of like uh, Marty Friedman's, you know, direction of, of coming up with songs in, in terms of he, he what he said was, I don't know if this is what he always does, but he said, you know, a lot of times he'll he'll think of the melody first and then he'll build the riffs and, and stuff underneath it. So he has that, you know, that conversation strain yeah. as the melody and then, you know, that's what the song is and then he'll build everything else behind it. I, I think that method kind of simplifies things a little bit because you already know where the stuff's going. Yeah, that's a really good you know. compositional technique. If you have a really good melody to start with, you can use that melody as sort of source material to build the rest of your song. So if you think of Beethoven's Fifth starting out, you know, very simply, that's that's sort of the prime textbook example of... Mm. using just those few notes in that very distinct rhythm to build an entire, I don't know how long it is, seven or eight minutes off of that. That's a really awesome approach. And like in the past, you know, that, that's the thing about writing music is there's no one way to do it. There's lots of different ways to do it. For me, like nowadays, if I were going to sit down and write a song, I would probably figure out style first like what style do i want to do so this latest song that i've done uh called diver is kind of stoner rock you know like uh doom stoner rock kind of mm -hmm. stuff so i would go listen to a bunch of doom and stoner rock just to get that sound in my head and then from there just try to imagine what i want my song to sound like and then try to transcribe what's going on in my head that's kind of one approach for a lot of the Killbot stuff that was done in a very scientific way where I would come up with a chord progression and then run that chord progression through a lot of different processes. So extracting melodies out of it, extracting bass lines out of it, playing mm -hmm. it forwards, playing it backwards, you know, using different inversions, doing it in different keys and sort of assembling a song that way. So a lot of the Killbot stuff, I feel I'm critical of it because a lot of it lacks melodic, you know, really solid mel melodic foundations. Because back then I, I was, you know, composing with chord progressions for like starting with chord progressions and going from there. You know, a lot of different ways to approach it. Mm -hmm. Totally. 
All right. So what significant negative experience have you overcome and what did that teach you? Oh, wow. Okay. I would say, well, significant negative experience, I think probably in my 20s when I was going through career changes and depression kind of at the same time. As far as what I learned from that, I think persistence is is key for so much of everything that occurs in your life. And my motto back then was I haven't lost as long as I haven't given up. Mm -hmm. It's like, as long as I'm trying, then I'm succeeding. And that was sort of the attitude that sort of dug me out of that, you know, grocery store job and into a teaching job. And that was, that was, that was an important lesson. And I think it was one that I had learned at a younger age, but I'd never had to really apply in a real world situation. I think a lot of us grow up knowing what to do, but unless you're tested and you have to do it, then it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So everybody knows you should keep trying and not give up. But how many of us have had to really do that in our lives, Hmm. you know? So that was a really, really important lesson. The other lesson I learned through that is that if you're feeling depressed, like really depressed, clinically depressed, I remember the thought that I had was nobody deserves to feel this way. And that includes me, you know, so you have to step outside of yourself and sort of have compassion for yourself and sort of love yourself in a way that that says, you know what, this person, this me person doesn't deserve this. And that was sort of another moment that kind of like, okay, that means I need to, let's do something about this. Let's do some self-care and let's try, you know, try, try, try to, to, to fix this in whatever way. I think in some ways, you know, that was my my moment where I was like, I got to get help. I got to see a counselor. I got to do this, you know, because nobody deserves this. Mm. So those those were moments, you know, just little moments of getting through something, I guess, and learning something. Right. I think that's a really important point because oftentimes if you're in that state, you get very self-destructive. And, and you know, that that that's a, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that kind of mindset in terms of trying to step outside yourself and and take hold of the situation and like care for yourself because otherwise you know the opposite could happen and it can get you know you know that it could get to the worst point ever yeah it's a really good way of thinking it but yeah thank you for sharing that problem you know it's been i think nowadays it's sort of like you also have to understand i think Young people need to understand, because I, I, I believe depression kind of manifests a lot in, in like teenagers, 20-somethings. Mm. But you got to understand it kind of comes back around. It's kind of cyclical. So it's not something that you're ever going to get rid of completely, but it's something that you're going to learn about and learn how to deal with as you get older. Mm-hmm. I think as you get older, the goal should be just to learn from the past and get better at dealing with situations. So now I'm at a point where I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's worth 
worrying about and what's not worth worrying about. And I think that's a really tough one for me because I do tend to ruminate and worry a lot about little things. That's, that's the hard lesson I'm trying to teach myself right now is what is worth worrying about and getting worked up over and what isn't, you know? So it's, I would tell somebody young that's going through depression, I would say, first of all, it's going to change. It's going to get better. It might come back, but you'll be better at dealing with it when it does. You know, you just got to kind of, uh, it sounds, it sounds stupid and cliche to say, hang in there. I, I, I apologize to our listeners that get tired of hearing that. Oh, just hang in there. It's true to some extent, but I will say the reality check is if you are clinically depressed, you're going to probably be dealing with that for the rest of your life, but you're going to get better and better at dealing with it. Mm. You know, you're going to get good at dealing with it and you'll be a better person for having gone through it. So it'll be useful, mm. this depression that you're going through. It's, you're going to be able to use it for good stuff later, is what I would say. Absolutely. Thank you. What major positive experience has given you the push to, to follow this journey? Wow. Oh, man. These are deep questions, Simon. <laughs> well, you listen to the podcast. You should be ready for them. <laughs> I know. Um, I was ready for the breakfast one. <laughs> right? Uh, let's see. Major positive experiences. I think meeting my wife in, in, in college was like a huge positive experience. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm not a religious person. I grew up as a religious person. I was raised Catholic. And I'm not a religious person anymore, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like in some ways it's coming back. Mm. I feel like, you know, when you're very young, you have magical thinking and, 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 uh, you know, as you get older, you become more cynical, but then I think it comes back as, as you get even older. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I feel like I've been super lucky. So I was really lucky to find someone uh, in college and you know, really, really lucky to find the career that I have and um, really lucky to have the kids that I have now. Mm -hmm. so there have been these really positive things. You know, if you're not a religious person, you could chalk it up to persistence and just, I guess, putting things out there that are going to raise your chances of good things happening to you. And if you are a religious person, I would say you'd probably view it as somebody must be looking out for me, you know, or somebody must be, there's no way that I could be this lucky. And a lot of it has to do with attitude too, you know, maybe people that have a lot of lucky things that have happened to them don't take the time to recognize them or don't see the bright side and they focus on the negative stuff. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I would say the number one biggest positive thing that's happened in my life is is meeting my wife in college and and having that. We've we've been married now for twenty three years, so that's been my life, you know. And I hope it continues to be my life. And I think you know it's it's uh, there's a social support element there, uh, just to bring it back to mm -hmm. mental health. I'm very much an introvert, and I'm very much enjoy being alone. I need to be by myself to sort of recharge but I still need that social support. So everybody out there needs, I think, some sort of social support, whether it be a parent or a guardian or a partner or, you know, a really, really good friend. And I would warn people that you're not going to find it through social media. It's There's a difference between a friend and a follower. Mm -hmm. 
so, you know, everybody needs somebody they can talk to and, and needs that social support element. So my wife has been incredible for that. You know, uh, she, she knows all my secrets and I can tell her anything. And I hope that everybody can find somebody like that in their lives. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Final question is what does music mean to you? Oh, uh, good. Very good question. And it, I, <laughs> I remember I was working with a bigger named person and I was recording them and they were a guest at the school I was working with and they were going around to the class. I was there. It was a, bu- it was a bunch of my students and myself and maybe a few other instructors. And this person went around to each student and said, what does music mean to you? And I was like, you better not ask me that because to me, that's offensive. It's like somebody asking me what religion means to me or like asking me, you know, about my belief in God. It's like, if we're strangers, you're not going to come up and ask, you know, it's okay for Simon for you to ask me that because we've known each other for a while. And that's a really good question. And this is the, this is the place to ask it. But to me, music is like my religion, you know, it's like, it's very personal. Mm. So it's, you know, it's part religious. It's, it's, it's like the closest thing to magic in our world, in my opinion, that, that we have. It can completely change your mindset. It can completely change who you are. Um, you know, it's sort of like this gateway to another dimension that is sort of beyond our world. Mm. You know, when, when people ask what music means to me, it's what I, what, what I imagine religion means to a lot of people, you know. So music is sort of my religion. As far as that goes, it's very spiritual, sort of mind changing, reality changing thing that I feel like people take take for granted, but nobody really knows what it is or has it figured out. You know, Mm. music is magic. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. If people want to get in touch, listen to the stuff you're working on, you know, go go check out the YouTube channel. Where's the best place they can go? Yeah, the YouTube right now I think is is the best place. My goal for that YouTube channel is, you know, I have several goals. One is for me to have fun doing it. Number two is just to, you know, sort of, I, I don't do any other social media. I gave up Facebook a while back. And if people who like what I do want to see it, YouTube is the place. I'd also like to build up that YouTube channel to the point where I want to start offering Zoom lessons, which I did a little bit over the pandemic, just out of necessity. But I'd love to start doing Zoom lessons again, just guitar lessons, theory lessons. So I'm hoping like the YouTube channel will be sort of a way to start that up. But yeah, YouTube is the place. The song that I just did a couple weeks ago was just sort of a solo song I did without Bruce. That's up on my YouTube channel right now, so you can listen to the whole thing there. Bruce and I do, are working on a couple of tunes right now as well, so we're just kind of waiting for a good moment for things to kind of calm down here at the university, and we need to lay down some drums for those. And I imagine we'll just kind of release it one at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how yet we'll we'll go about that, but yeah. So YouTube for me is is the way to to hear my stuff and see what I'm up to. All right. Is just Chris Cabrera? I forget. I think it's uh, YouTube slash users slash C Cabrera is what it is. Okay. Yeah. I'll link it in the show notes so people can go straight there. So, all right. And and as you said, I think we, you, you, the the song you just did is 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 that the one that you want to play at the end? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. It's called Diver. Yeah. It's uh, I, I'm calling it 
like the imaginary band. I, there's always an imaginary band that goes with it. So the band is just Megadroid, which is a name of a Killbot, old Killbot song. Mm. And the song is called Diver. And there's no reason reasoning behind that. Just I thought they sounded cool together. But it's a, it's very much an homage to sort of all the stoner rock I've been listening to lately. Bands like Sleep and uh, The Sword and those kinds of mm-hmm. those kinds of guys. I used the uh, orange. They call it citrus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Citrus amp and citrus cabs on the Axe FX3 to, to give it sort of a stoner rock vibe, I guess, I hope. But yeah, I appreciate anybody who wants to go check that out. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to do a few more of those here and there coming up if I have time. Awesome. So, so at, at some point, I'd like to have a whole Stoner Rock album, but we'll see. Fantastic. Yeah, look forward to that. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, maybe maybe in a few episodes or you know, 50 or so, we'll, we'll do a, a part two. That sounds great. Thank you very much, Simon, for having me. I enjoyed it very much. And thanks again for all of your support over the years. And I hope you continue to do well. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast, so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Chris Cavera as Megadroid with Driver. Thank <laughs> you.